copy of God's Word to Psalm 90. Psalm 90. Let's read the Word of God together. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy, or even by reason of strength, eighty. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, Establish the work of our hands. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have heard this word from you, and we ask now that you would give us eyes to see the truth, ears to hear its truth, that we would behold you in all your glory as you reveal yourself here to us. This we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Well, Dr. Lydia Dugdale spent a number of years working in a hospital cancer ward before she began her career as a professor teaching medical ethics. And she writes rather frankly in her book, The Lost Art of Dying, about the stark realities of death, with which, of course, she was confronted on a daily basis in her role there in the hospital. In fact, Dr. Dugdale wrote The Lost Art of Dying precisely because, in her view as a Christian, neither her patients nor their caregivers were generally uh, equipped with a robust view of death. As she points out in her book, in our culture, much to our detriment, even in the hospital, she writes, we no longer grow old or die, or at least we try to avoid talking about it. She goes on, most doctors feel ill-equipped to tell their patients that they're dying. In my seven years of medical training, she says, I had only two workshops on the subject of how to deliver bad news, despite the fact that medical practice is replete with bad news. You see, even as Christians, my friends, we don't talk about death, do we? Why? Well, because it isn't 
pleasant, and it isn't polite, and it certainly isn't positive. We would, we would rather ignore the entire subject of death and pretend that this inevitable reality is really something of a remote possibility. And that tendency, I'm afraid, is not one which finds affirmation in the Scriptures. And historically, Christians have not at all been characterized by this sort of willful ignorance of the reality of death. It struck me even a moment ago as we were reading death and dying, whether it's Christ's or ours, features in the Apostles' Creed. Many even today, though, take pains to, to remain keenly aware of their own mortality. I remember uh, sitting in one of my seminary professor's offices, meeting with him when his phone went off on the desk in front of him. And he looked down and he said, oh, that's just my daily reminder to contemplate my own death. Will you join me? So we got to spend a few minutes engaged in what Christians of old would have called memento mori, remembering death. You see, my professor had, had taken to heart the words of Psalm 90. This psalm, as one commentator puts it, is, is virtually unrivaled in its presentation on the one hand of God's grandeur and eternity, and on the other, of man's frailty. It's a reflection not only then on, on God's greatness, but also on man's finitude and even our mortality. And the result of this reflection is that the psalmist actually breaks out into worship. He cries out to God in faith and hope. And the great lesson of this psalm then is that the Christian, rather than ignoring death, the Christian clings to the hope of a blessed life. For the Christian, instead of ignoring death, we cling to the hope of a blessed life. So this morning we'll approach our psalm in, in three parts. First, looking at the greatness of God, and then looking at man's desperate plight, and then finally considering the Christian's cry before God. So without further ado, let's consider that first point, the greatness of our God. <clears throat> The greatness of there are intriguing aspects to this psalm even before we get to verse one. First of all, you'll notice that this is the very first psalm in book four of the Psalter or of the, the overall book of Psalms. It's broken up into five smaller books, and Psalm 90 begins book four. Uh, the Psalter, as many have sought to, to point out, is not just a random assortment of ancient poems. This is Israel's hymn book. And just like our hymn books, it's not slapped together. It's, it's carefully curated and arranged. And, and some would say it even tells a story. And that that story tracks along with the story of God's people. So they would say if we were to, were, were to recount the story of the book of Psalms up to now, that that Book one told the tale of God's king being established upon his holy hill. And then that in book two, that kingdom is threatened by a number of threats both within and without the kingdom. And then in book three, we come to a real low point in the book of Psalms as well as in Israel's national history where we contemplate the exile, God's judgment on the people for their apostasy. But now in book 4, which begins here with Psalm 90, we begin to see that, that God's people have actually developed a more robust faith through their suffering in the exile. To paraphrase what o. Palmer, o. Palmer Robertson writes regarding book 4 of the Psalter, he says, instead of surrendering all hope that the covenant promise will be realized, the faith of the psalmist has reached a higher level of maturity. Maturity. 
Rather than destroying their faith, he says, the nation's exile has proven to them that actually greater trust must be placed in the eternal kingship of the Lord, who who will be true, he says, to his covenantal promises. So right from the start here, the context of this psalm should indicate to us that we are about to learn a great lesson about trust in the Almighty God. But a second important feature of this psalm appears even before verse 1. This is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. The fact that Moses wrote this psalm is interesting on a few levels. First is the simple fact that Moses, of any character in our Old Testaments, even our whole Bibles, Moses was well acquainted with the greatness of God on a firsthand basis, wasn't he? Moses was on Mount Sinai with the Lord. The Lord used to speak to Moses, where we read, face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Moses had heard God pronounce his own covenant name there on the mountain from the midst of the fiery cloud, the Lord, the Lord. Moses had seen God do wonders, everything from parting the Red Sea to making the the sun stand still in the sky. Not many people, if any, have had the sort of first-hand experience of the greatness of God which Moses had. And yet, perhaps the best lesson on the greatness of God which Moses had learned was through the experience of God's mercy toward faithless Israel. Think of some of those instances. Think of the golden calf episode. Think of the many times the people rebelled in the wilderness. And Moses had seen these great sins. And yes, he had seen how God for a time had judged and punished his people, but then he had also seen how God had remained faithful to them despite their faithlessness. How he had re-entered into fellowship with them each and every time. And those episodes of rebellion, of course, were just sort of warm-ups for the great national rebellion, which would lead to the exile one day. And so now, as we begin book four of the Psalter, and the story progresses from the devastation of the exile to the reflectiveness of a mature faith, who do we get a word from? We get a word from Moses. And look at how he begins this psalm. He says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Notice that, that this is Lord with sort of lowercase letters, not all caps. This is not God's proper name. This is his title, Master, King. Right from the start, we're being called to recognize that God is the true King. And what kind of King is he? Well, he's a King who provides shelter, a dwelling place for his people. And he's a faithful King, too. He's done this from generation to generation. In fact, his lordship, we read, transcends any kind of reference point in time which we might have. Before the mountains were brought forth, we read, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, you are God. His dynasty, we might say, is eternal. It was Moses, you remember, who who had written about the creation of the world by the Lord back in Genesis 1 and 2 written about this God who could could speak into existence all things and who has himself forever existed independent and apart from his own creation as the eternally self-sufficient God. As the one who who created all things, of course you understand, God has total lordship over his creation. 
Even the fate of mankind, the pinnacle of his creation, is is entirely at his disposal. You return man to the dust, says Moses, and say, return, O children of man. Just as, as God created man from the ground, God has the right and he has the power to put man back in the ground. It's worth noting that this is actually presented to us as a good thing. Think about it. The perfectly wise God who gave you life is the only one who can take it away. As we read in Psalm 37, the Lord knoweth the days of the upright. There's no one else whom we should want numbering our days rather than the Lord, not even ourselves. You see, for the eternal God, the, the lifetime of a man or a woman is a drop in the bucket. Your sight or as yesterday when it's passed or as a watch in the night. For God, who exists outside of time, who never changes in any way, a millennium, it passes like any other day. It passes like a, a three-hour watch on the walls. I remember once as a teenager being in a, a hunting blind in the wee hours of the night with a friend. And I can tell you that if you sit out in the middle of the woods for three hours between 12 a.m. and 3 a.m., not a lot happens. (laughs) Eventually you go back inside, you fall asleep. If you're a teenager, you wake up sometime around noon, and you pretty much don't remember what you did for those three hours. That is what Moses compares the ages of history to in the sight of God. His point here is simply that our God is great, yes, but more than that, he is great to a point that we, my friends, cannot even grasp. Not only, though, is God great in terms of his power, he's also great in terms of his rights. He isn't just powerful enough to return man to the dust, he he actually has the right to do that. As we read in verses 5 and 6, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning, In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. You might remember that that just as Moses wrote about the creation of the world in the early chapters of Genesis, a few chapters later he was writing about the destruction of the world by the flood. Mankind rebelled against God, and, and their thoughts were only wicked all the time, we read. And so God exercised his divine right to bring an end to man's rebellion. You see, ultimately, ultimately, from God's perspective, our lives, my friends, are fleeting. And this isn't meant to make us view God as some sort of detached, uncaring, unloving, creating entity. Rather, these verses here should, should help us to grapple with and eventually to accept the reality of the greatness of God. God loves every one of his creatures. We know that. But, but the fact remains that we are his creatures, God cares cares intimately about our lives, but the fact remains that our lives in no way affect him personally or change him personally. We might not like to think of our relationship with God in these sorts of terms, and and certainly there are plenty of other passages we might look to in Scripture which, which emphasize God's with God as almighty maker, who's not personally affected by our coming and going from this earth. And so the fact remains that we need to remember who he is if we are ever going to understand who we are. And if there's one moment in a person's life, my friends, when it is absolutely crucial that he understand rightly who he is, surely that moment is when a person contemplates his or her own death. 
You might have noticed as we move on to our second point uh, in verse 7 that the subject of the psalm changes. And here we begin to consider mankind's desperate plight because the subject changes from you, O Lord, to we, mankind, mankind's desperate plight. Up until now, uh, we've been talking about God, but now we focus on our own condition. He says in verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger, and by your wrath we are dismayed. Didn't he? Just think of how he saw the ground open up and swallow those who had joined in, in Korah's rebellion, so that we read they, they went down alive to Sheol, and the ground closed over them. He'd seen the ravages of of plagues and of venomous snakes, even fire from heaven, all brought down, sent by God to punish those who had rejected him. Moses knew that no little sin is hidden from God and that every little sin deserves God's wrath. And so he writes in verse 8, You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. You see, when we rightly consider ourselves in relation to God, the first thing we're confronted with is the reality, not only of his greatness, but of our finitude, of our mortality, of our sin, and of our guilt. The desperate plight of mankind, beloved, is that we sin, and our sin leads to death. And neither are we spared this plight simply because we belong to to the church, to God's gracious covenant community. Israel had found that out the hard way, hadn't they? Not only in Moses' lifetime, but then later in the exile. I like how the, the old Scottish minister David Dixon puts it in his commentary on these lines. He says, common calamities and worldly miseries are as common, may be found as evidently in God's visible church as in any institution of the world. For here, he says, is the theater of God's judgments as well as of his mercies. And when God's people provoke him, his judgments begin at his own house. We're not exempt from this simply because we've showed up this morning. You see, the problem is not that God justly punishes our sins. Mankind's problem is that we have placed ourselves under the power of death by our sins, by our rebellion against God. And so Moses goes on, he says, For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. We might say that because of sin, all of our days, the sum total of our years, are lived under the looming shadow of death. And furthermore, while we might, we might want to think of ourselves as sort of the, the main characters in our own epic movies, well, Moses seems to want us to accept that, generally speaking, life under the sun is anticlimactic. We go out not with a bang, but with a breath. The years of our life, he says, are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, and yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. This might remind you, as it reminded me, of of the opening lines of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all his toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The point there in Ecclesiastes, just like here in Psalm 90, is 
Not that life is ultimately meaningless, but that from our perspective, from a a purely earthly, what we call an under-the-sun perspective, life tends to simply fizzle out, doesn't it? And that, that no amount of striving or toiling or working at it in this life is going to allow us ultimately to transcend our own mortality. Friends, this is the desperate plight of mankind. We live in the shadow of death, with death constantly at hand to put an end to our delusions of grandeur. We ought to take a moment here, I think, to to consider just how starkly this biblical view of mankind, of life, of death, contrasts with what the world has to offer and what we hear all the time from the world. I think we can say the world offers us two main options for how to view life and humanity and death. Uh, One of those we might call the the materialistic view. All that exists is, is physical matter. And so we, as people, are really nothing more than highly developed animals. We have no souls. There's no afterlife. And so we have no sort of ultimate purpose. And the best that we can do then is to live our best lives now. And that means taking what we want by fair means or foul. Hopefully that's not too tempting to you as a Christian. But the world also offers another option, which I think is far, uh, far more easy for us to succumb to even as Christians. We, we'll call this the transcendentalist view. And this is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum from the materialist. Uh, for the transcendentalist, the goal of this life is actually to escape this life. They view humanity as as primarily spiritual beings, and and our bodies are are just sort of impediments, roadblocks to us attaining the sort of of freedom and liberation from the suffering of this world, which should be our goal. And so transcendentalists, they, they practice meditation and mindfulness, and they seek to escape the realities of life under the sun. I had another professor some years before I met my seminary professor that I mentioned earlier, another professor at community college who was a self-avowed transcendentalist. And she also actually had an app on her phone which would sound at random times during her week. But when her app went off, she didn't stop and, and contemplate her own death with a friend, Rather, hers was a reminder to center herself. And so I saw her many times in the middle of class drop whatever she happened to be doing, including on one occasion holding her laptop, just drop everything, close her eyes, shut out the world, try and attain some sort of mindless state in the middle of our humanities class. Friends, neither the materialist nor the transcendentalist views life the way that Scripture views life. The fundamental problem with any of the world's views of mankind is that they begin with mankind itself. But the Christian view of life, you understand, it begins not with mankind, but with God. It begins specifically with the fear of God. As Moses notes in verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? When we begin our consideration of who we are with ourselves as our starting place and not with God and who he is, well, we inevitably end up totally misunderstanding everything about life. A life, you see, is is meant to be lived in the fear of the Lord Almighty. Only the person then who has learned a healthy fear of God can understand life and, and, yes, even death. For when we fear God... 
We come to reverence him as our creator and, and as creator, not just of bodies or just of souls, but of whole people whose bodies and souls together are created for his glory. So while materialists seek only to glorify the body and gratify the body and, and transcendentalists seek only to liberate the soul, well, the aim of the Christian is to glorify God with body and soul And the gift of the Christian, the blessing of the Christian, is that we find in God an eternal dwelling place for body and soul. And this view of mankind and of his plight and of his purpose leads to what we find in the concluding verses of our psalm. Look there at verses 12 to 17 and we'll find our third point, the Christians cry before God. The Christians cry before God. When we come to understand who God is, and who we are, we are forced to conclude that actually our only hope is God himself, and we cry out to him. So teach us to number our days, says Moses. Why? That we may get a heart of wisdom. The mature Christian, you see, responds to the reality of sin and death by begging God for wisdom. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, wisdom in Scripture is about far more than simply a good decision-making or strategic planning or anything like that. Wisdom is actually a spiritual virtue. It's something we're to cultivate, and the Spirit is to cultivate in the Christian's heart. True wisdom is to view life from a heavenly perspective rather than merely an earthly one. True wisdom is to number our days then, even as God has numbered them. And so, uh, rather than live our lives presumptuously, as if they're never going to end, we ought to ask for wisdom, for for the mind, the eye of God, as to the nature of our lives. Uh, Like what Calvin says in his commentary on this, he asks a great question, rhetorical question, but a, a piercing and biting one. He says, what could be greater proof of madness than to live our lives, to ramble about, without proposing to oneself any end. True believers alone, he says, who know the difference between this transitory state and a blessed eternity for which they were created, know what ought to be the aim of their life. You see, as Christians, his point is, as Christians, we ought to live this life under no illusions. We ought not to think as though this life were all that we have to live for, nor, however, as though this life were only worth escaping. We ought to live and think with wisdom, as though this life of suffering actually matters. Why? Well, because it is a preparation for an eternal life of blessedness. And oh, my friends, how we ought to long for that blessed life to come. Return, O Lord, cries Moses, And here he does use that covenantal name of God as if to to remind God to invoke his covenantal promises to be faithful. How long, he says, have pity on your servants. Uh, The Christian cries out to God for deliverance from sin and from suffering and for entrance into God's blessed peace and presence. Satisfy us, he says, in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. Rather than seeking satisfaction in the things of the world, the mature Christian seeks satisfaction in the love of God. The love of God is what makes him happy. 
That is what transforms his, his life of suffering into one of rejoicing. That is what makes him able to face the reality of death uh, with frankness and even with joy. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, says the psalmist, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Just as God can return man to the dust because of his sins, so also God can reverse man's fortunes for the better. And indeed, beloved, he does do this for each and every one of his people. Even as the the prophet Isaiah declares, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. She's received double from the Lord's hand for all her sins. You see, the Christian cries out to God because God has cried out to the Christian. And what the Lord has cried out to you, my friends, is a cry of comfort and mercy, of reconciliation and of peace. This reconciliation and this peace are blessings which God has secured for you himself. God has delivered you from the power of sin and death by his son. And thus Moses says in verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. The God who created mankind, you understand, he has done an even greater work somehow. He has rescued mankind. And like Moses, we should long to see the evidence of that great work of salvation in our lives. We should pray that our children would see it in us and in them. We should be crying out to God that his glorious power would be evidenced in us as we find in him a dwelling place for all generations. We should be crying out with the psalmist and with God's people in every age, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. That, beloved, is really the cry of wisdom. That is what the mature Christian desires above all. That is what we ought to long for when we've once considered the greatness of our God and the desperation of our plight. And that is what gives our lives purpose. How does he close this psalm? Establish the work of our hands, O Lord. Yes, establish the work of our hands. If you want your life to mean something in the end, you want to one day reflect on all the years of your life and to know that they have not been lived just for no reason at all, well, then that ought to be your prayer. Your prayer should be that God would establish you, that he would be the one to bless you and to keep you. This psalm, my friends, teaches that our lives are dependent on God not only for their creation, not only for their sustenance, but for their success. And so Moses intimates, as Calvin puts it, that we cannot undertake or attempt anything with the prospect of success unless God become our guide and counselor and govern us by his spirit. He must enable us, says Calvin, to complete the whole course. Friends, this is a psalm about death, but it is a psalm with profound implications for our lives. It might focus on the end of our years, but it has so much to teach us about the whole course of our days. And what this psalm drives home to us is that life is best spent pursuing the mind of God, pursuing the mind of Christ. Life is best spent in total dependence upon him. 
Life is best spent searching, crying out for wisdom from above. For what does the Apostle Paul write? But that wisdom teaches us to seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, and to set our minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on this earth. Why? Well, as Paul says, because we have already died. And our lives are hidden with Christ on high, so that when Christ, who is our life, appears, we also will appear with him in glory. Toward the end of her book, The the Lost Art of Dying, Dr. Dugdale offers a, a justification for why a person would undertake to write such an extended reflection on the subject of death. She writes, the aim of this book is not to induce regret, but to provide the substance for change moving forward. It's meant to compel us to think differently about our living and thereby to improve our dying, she says. Psalm 90 functions in much the same way. You understand, my friends, as Christians, we just can't not think about death. (laughs) I know that death is painful. Each of us likely has experienced it on one level or another. It robs us of loved ones. It leaves holes in our hearts and in our homes. But Scripture teaches us, my friends, that to live is Christ, yes, but to die is actually gain. In other words, to, to live is to do as Christ did, to endure this pilgrimage through a weary, fallen world while bringing the light of his gospel to bear and to shine in it. But to die is gain. It's to enter from this life into a life of pure blessedness. That, my friends, is the heavenly perspective on death. And therefore, we do well to seek out such wisdom. And we do well to ask God that he would give us such a perspective. And of course, we do well, my friends, to cry out to our God, Return, O Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, indeed, we beg you that you would return, that you would bring an end to our sin, to our suffering, to our death. But, O Lord, if in your providence you tarry, we ask that you would give us wisdom for the interval, that we would learn to see this life as you see this life, with the eyes of heaven, and that we would look each day to your coming in faith and in hope. Amen.